Amen. Good turnout tonight. Must be what a new series will do for you, huh? Gospel of John. Hey, we're going to start out actually in chapter 20. We're going to be in chapter 14 tonight, but I want to start out in chapter 20. So the Gospel of John, chapter 20, as we begin a new eight-week, just eight-week series in John 14, 15, 16, and 17. We're going to take two weeks in each of these chapters. So two weeks for John 14, two for 15, two for 16, and two for 17. And then uh, we'll dive back into the life of David uh, beginning in the, on the 1st of May. So tonight, I wanted to start out with the purpose of the Gospel of John. Every book in the Bible has a purpose. It's, but some books of the Bible, it's harder to find the purpose of the book, or you have to read the book several times in order to discover what the purpose is. The Gospel of John is probably the easiest book in the Bible to find the purpose of it because the author basically at the end of the book or towards the end of the book says, here's why I wrote the book. Here's what the book's about. So pretty straightforward. That's just the kind of guy John is. So notice in John chapter 20, I just want to remind us of the purpose of the book. In verses 30 and 31, the last two verses of the next to last chapter of the Gospel, John writes, now Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the reason why John wrote the book. He wanted to present Jesus Christ as the Christ, the Son of God, and, and write it in a way to encourage people to believe in Jesus so that they might have life. The reason I wanted to share that is because it goes along with what we're going to be talking about tonight. So back to John chapter 14. Let me now, before we dive into this chapter for a little bit tonight, set the backdrop of it. These are the last words of Jesus to his followers on earth before he goes to the cross in less than 24 hours. So they are very powerful words. It has been said that last words are lasting words. And these are the very last words that Jesus chooses to share with his disciples. I have always come to this passage of scripture to be encouraged throughout my Christian life. And it doesn't matter where we are in our Christian life. I believe that these passages we're going to be looking at over the next eight weeks are truly going to be encouraging. And I think it's a great passage of Scripture, John 14, 15, 16, and 17, to look at around the Easter season as we prepare ourselves to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, but as we also as Christians are reminded of, of His death and of His sacrifice and all that is entailed there. And so let's remember something. One of the things that we're seeing here is this. Jesus always prepares his followers for what he knows is coming in their lives. Always. And Jesus had been preparing these followers of his for his death and departure and eventual ascension to be with the He's been preparing them. They haven't been getting it very well, and so he really gets pretty pointed here in these chapters to just say, 
Guys, I, I, I need you to get this. And if you don't get it now, it'll certainly come back to you probably in less than 24 hours when all of this begins to unfold. The, the other thing we see here is this. The, the reason why the disciples he knew were not going to be in a good place is because their Lord and Master that they have been following for three years, in just a little bit, they're going to see Him beaten and bloodied and nailed to a cross. And all the hopes and dreams that maybe they had had tied up in His continual life, now all of a sudden is going to be shattered in just a little bit of time. And then in the context, if you read the last few verses of John 13, Jesus also told them, oh, by the way, one of you that have been with us for three years is going to betray me. Oh, and your leader, Peter, he's going to deny me three times. So we probably can't even imagine what was going through the disciples' minds like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, Jesus, you're, you're going to die and... And Peter, our, our leader, is going to deny you? And, and one of us is betraying you? I mean, it's just as if their world had just been taken out from underneath of them. And so it is into this crisis of faith, it, it is into this backdrop that Jesus now speaks these very powerful and poignant words. Notice he says, do not let your hearts be distressed. And remember, the heart in the Bible is the reservoir out of which everything else in our life flows. That's why the heart is so important. That's why the Bible says to guard the heart with all diligence. Because our heart really produces our emotions, our passions, our will, our desires, our affections. Everything flows out of the heart. The heart is not just the beating organ that pumps blood through our physical body and keeps us alive. It is the very center of our being. Everything flows out of the heart. And so he's saying, do not let your heart be distressed. A very interesting word that Jesus uses here, distressed. It literally means to be churning, to be agitated, to be disquieted, to be troubled. In other words, we've all been there. It's like when our stomach just starts doing flip-flops and going around and, and our stomach gets all churned up inside. Jesus is sensing that what he's told them and what they are about to experience, wow, emotionally they're, they're losing it. And, and physically, there's now physical symptoms coming because of it. And they're very much, at least at the stomach level, if you will, just very uneasy. But here's the antidote to them being all churned up and agitated and disquieted and troubled within. He says, believe in God, or you believe in God, believe also in me. That's the key. And what Jesus is pointing out is there's not just a, a saving faith that the Bible talks about. There is a sustaining faith. And what Jesus here is trying to share with the disciples is, look, the faith that you need, the belief, the trust, and the confidence that you need now in me more than ever is going to sustain you for what's about to happen. 
so that you don't allow yourself to get all turned upside down, in a sense, on the inside. You and I can remain calm and composed no matter what's going on if we truly believe in Jesus. Now, one of the other themes that Jesus sort of lays down here that he's going to come back and hit heavy on in verses 7 through 11 is the fact that that Jesus and the Father are equal and they are one and they are totally unified. And that was something that the disciples were having a hard time grasping. It's something that even we have a hard time grasping. I don't expect it to, us to grasp it tonight. There's no way a human being in our limitations right now can grasp a God who is three persons, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet one. And yet that's what the Bible teaches. And Jesus here is really hammering home in this passage the oneness, the equality of He and the Father, and He'll come back to that in just a moment. Again, the word believe in the Bible in the New Testament means to place one's confidence and trust in. Is that what we're doing tonight? Wherever we are in life, whatever we're dealing with in life, are we placing our trust and confidence in Jesus? And one of the other things that's implied in this word is the fact that, the, that we should be trusting in one whose character can be relied upon. In other words, Jesus is saying, you can believe in me because of my character. And because I am who I am, I can be relied upon. The Bible always teaches that even the best of men, if you will, are still men. They will fail us. There is no surety with anything man-made or any man, no matter who they are. And that's why our ultimate hope and trust and confidence should never be on anything man-made, in any man, on anything on earth, but should be placed in Jesus. Because he's one whose character can always be relied upon. And he's saying, guys, if you've ever believed in me, believe in me now. Place your trust and confidence in me. Even when you see me hanging on the cross, you've got to still believe that all is not lost. And that this was all part of God's plan. You and I, were there in our life. There are times in our life where we may not be seeing the crucifixion of our Savior. But we're going through circumstances that we begin to question, is God really in control? And does He really love me? And does He still care about me? And, and what's happening around me? And, and can I really believe in what God has said? We've all been there. And that's where Jesus is saying to his followers, it is especially at those times where in the circumstances of life, everything seems to be going haywire when we really need to choose to place our trust and confidence in one who can be relied upon. God wants to sustain us. Notice something very interesting. Jesus didn't shield his followers from the fact that one would betray them. He didn't shield them from the fact that one would deny him. He didn't shield them from the fact of his own death and crucifixion. He didn't remove his disciples and say, hey guys, I got this great plan. Uh, there's going to be a lot of pain going on in Jerusalem in the next couple of days. So I'm, I want you guys to go like take a vacation and get away from here for a couple of weeks. And then when you come back, everything will be settled down and, and it'll probably be a little bit better. No. Jesus was even teaching by example that... 
I don't want to always remove my followers from the tough things that they're going through, but to show them that if they believe in me, they can get through the absolute toughest, most difficult, most challenging times in their life if they continue to trust and place their confidence in me. And that's what he wants to tell us tonight. I can sustain you. Continue to believe in me. Then he wants to talk to him about the future. He says, guys, look. This is not the end. There's a wonderful future that I want you to keep your eyes on too. Don't just keep believing and trusting in me, but keep trusting and having confidence and conviction in what's coming. When he says to them in verse 2, there are many dwelling places in my Father's house. You know, there's a lot of ways that Jesus could have talked about heaven with his disciples, with his followers. I love the way he talks about heaven here the language that he uses to describe heaven. First of all, he says there are many dwelling places. The the word means a staying, an abiding to remain. In other words, unlike where, you know, on earth we may sojourn here for a while and we may live here for a while, whatever, there's a permanency. There's a permanency when we get to heaven. And then, of all ways to describe heaven, he says, in my Father's house. In other words, literally, it's a family dwelling. Because we're a family. We're a family down here, which is why at the Oasis, we do the things that we do. And we strive to be the church that we are being, because we believe God calls us to be a family. Because one day we're going to be a family up there. And we're going to dwell in the Father's family home. There's a home awaiting us. Notice he goes on to say, otherwise I would have told you. In other words, I'm not going to give you false hope. If this all wasn't true, I would have told you. The reason I'm telling you is because this is really going to happen. You're really going to be in heaven one day and it's going to be a permanent thing and you're going to be part of this big family in heaven and we're all going to be in the Father's family home. And we're going to take care of you. And then he says, because I'm I'm going away to make ready, to literally to prepare or make the necessary preparations for a place for you. Don't miss the fact that the Bible teaches that heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. And think about this. Jesus was teaching the creator of the universe, along with the Father and the Spirit, says, guys, one of the things I'm going to do when I go back to my Father and I ascend back to heaven I'm making all the necessary preparations for a place for you. And the you there is individual. In other words, don't miss the fact that in verse 3, yes, it's going to be a lot of people in heaven. Humanity from all the ages who have believed in Christ will be there. But there's also an individual place for you. 
which is what is implied by the word place in verse 3. Or excuse me, at the end of verse 2. It literally means a portion or space marked off for you. In other words, I think this is cool. God's going to give us our own space in heaven. Yeah, we're all going to be together. And there is that dynamic of corporate and and we're all going to be together. But God, I think even in the way he created us, knows, you know what, too? We all need our own space every once in a while. And so even in heaven, you and I are going to have our own space. A space that Jesus Christ Himself has taken time to prepare for you. Because Jesus Christ knows us better than we even know ourselves. That space in heaven that's going to be for us, it's going to be permanent in the family home. It's going to be designed specifically just for you. It's going to fit you. Can I just say that means for me there's going to be some brownies involved. (laughs) I don't know. I, I, I just think it's so... It's so amazing that the God of the universe who is so far beyond us not only loved us enough to come to the earth and to die for us, but cares enough about us, even in the details of not only this life, but the details of eternity. That he said, guys, I want you to know that when I go back to heaven, I'm going to take time for each one of you, and I'm going to set you up, in a sense, in a, in a heavenly apartment that's going to be just for you. Wow. That's how much Jesus cares about each one of us. And then in verse 3, a great promise. He says, if I'm going to go and do all this and make ready a place for you, I'm coming again. The promise of Him coming back to take believers home. I believe this is talking about the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 17 and following. Where the Bible talks about the fact that This isn't where Jesus is coming back to to put down all the nations of the world who are rebelling against Him in the book of Revelation and setting up His earthly kingdom. This is the part where Jesus doesn't even set foot on the earth, but is in the clouds, and we are caught up, literally raptured up to meet Him in the air, to be reunited with all the saints of all time, and to go back to heaven while the seven-year tribulation takes place on the earth. Jesus says, I'm coming again. And then he says, I'm going to come again and take you to be with me. In other words, these words are talking about the fact that Jesus wants to be our eternal companion. He wants to join himself with us for all of eternity. I don't know about you, but I don't even think I could spend all of eternity with me. That's a long time to put up with Jeff. And yet God, who is perfect is saying to each one of us, I love you so much, I not only designed this plan so that I will be with you this much, but I'm going to be with you never ending. I'm never going to get tired of you. I'm never going to, you know, we're not, this relationship's never going to wear out. It's going to go on and on and on and on. 
I'm joining myself to you. And the cool thing about eternity is I believe with all my heart that Jesus is going to take individual time with each one of us. You say, well, that's billions of people. Yeah, but we've got all of eternity. <laughs> that's why when I start thinking about heaven, man, I just... I mean, the thoughts of being able to sit down with somebody like a Moses. Hey, Moses, can you give me some time? Time, yeah. You got, you got a thousand years? Let's sit down and talk. You know, Moses, what was it like when the Red Sea parted? Tell me about that. Noah, what was it like to build the ark? Mary, what was it like to be the mother of Jesus? And can you tell me about the things the Bible didn't tell you about? What was he like as a teenager? Tell me, Mary. So Jesus says, I will come again and take you to be with me so that where I am, you may be too. See, Jesus is saying to his followers, look, I know we're going to be apart now. I'm going to come back after my resurrection for 40 days. I'm going to appear, but then I'm going to go. But you've got to understand, it's just, it's just temporary. When I come back to get you, you will be with me forever. I will join myself to you and there will be a family dwelling place just for you. I'm preparing it. Jesus, see, wants them to begin, instead of focusing on all that's going on around them, to continue to believe in Him and trust in the future that God has prepared for them ahead. And then Jesus says, And you know the way, verse 4, where I am going. Now Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And one of the most famous verses of the Bible Jesus replies, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. First of all, salvation, if you will, is embodied in a person. That's one of the things Jesus is saying. Salvation is not found in a church it's not found in a religion. It's not found in creeds. It's not found in doing a list of do's and don'ts. It is found in a person. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus, by using the word way, back in chapter 10 of the Gospel of John, I think he's using the same concept, just a different word. He says, I'm the door. I'm the door of the sheep. I am the door. There is no other way of salvation. There is another road to travel to get to God besides me. He is salvation. If a person wants to be saved, delivered from the penalty, the power, and one day from the very presence of sin, there's only one way, and that is through the person of Jesus Christ. Then Jesus said, not only is there a solution to being saved, there's also a solution to being sure. Because I'm the truth. You see, the word truth means what is true, what is real, what is certain. And so, truth is embodied in Jesus. We again can rely on Him because even He Himself is the truth. Therefore, I can be saved, I can be sure. And then... I can be satisfied because that's what the word life implies. Jesus can save me. I can be sure of it. I can be satisfied because the word life here 
speaks about absolute fullness of life, the abundant life that Jesus talks about, one's best life. In fact, it even has the implication in the Greek language of being able to enjoy life. In other words, what Jesus is really saying is, a person, a human being, without me in their life, you can enjoy this life on earth to a certain level. But with me, the enjoyment of life goes way up. In fact, keep your finger there. Great verses. Let me see if I can remember this off the top of my head. Ecclesiastes. Uh, I just, these, is, these verses are so cool. Ecclesiastes, uh, I want to say chapter 2. If you'll turn there with me. I want you to see this. Yeah, oh good, thank you God. The memory's not as good as it used to be. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It's after Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes right there in the middle of the Old Testament. Look at verses 24 in the beginning of verse, well, 24 and 25. Very important verses. The writer of Ecclesiastes, who I believe is Solomon, is saying here, there's nothing better for people than to eat and drink. Well, we got that down at the Oasis, let me tell you. But notice, and to find enjoyment in their work. Don't miss this next phrase of verse 24. I also perceived that this ability to find enjoyment comes from God. Wow! One of the reasons why human beings are not enjoying life is because even the ability to enjoy the life that God gives comes from God. He's the creator. He's the one who built life anyway. He's the one who created us. And the only way one can really find joy and enjoyment in life is through a relationship with God. And then verse 25, for no one can even eat and drink or experience joy apart from him. Wow, those are great verses. Keep those verses in mind, especially the next time you maybe run into a Christian that you can encourage who's not enjoying life at the moment. And maybe God can bring you along and say, you know what, but God wants you to enjoy life. Are you in fellowship with God? Are you connected to God like you should be? Because if you are, He will give you the ability to find enjoyment even in your work. Even in the mundane, routine things of life, God can give you and I the ability to enjoy life at the highest absolute level. That's what Jesus meant back in John 14 by, I am the life. Then verse... 6 also reminds us back in John 14 about the exclusivity of salvation. And this, this is politically incorrect nowadays. But can I just tell you, as long as God gives me breath, I'm going to preach it because it's biblical. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Period. And I, it's what the Bible teaches. It's what Jesus said. There aren't many ways to God. There aren't many ways to this family home in heaven. Jesus himself said, only, only through me is salvation. Salvation is embodied in me. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is saying, I'm the only channel of salvation. Again, that's not popular. Especially in a continuing, ever-increasing, secularistic, humanistic world that we live in. People can 
make up their own way to God. And they do. But the only way to God is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. And if we truly have trust and confidence in one whose character can be relied upon, then all the questions that we have about how does that work and how can God be fair and just and all that would be answered if we simply trusted in Him. Either His character can be relied upon or it can't. Either He's just or He's not. And if He is a just God, if He is one who can be relied upon, then let Him figure it all out. But we shouldn't try to change what the Bible teaches about salvation to accommodate the growing and ever-increasing way that the world says it needs to be. Because at the end of the day, they're going to be disappointed. Because salvation can only come through Jesus Christ. And then he says, verse 7, If you had known me, you would know my Father too. This is where he gets into talking about how he and the Father are so unified. And from now on, you do know him. In other words, you are learning of and growing and understanding of him. And you've seen him. That probably blew the disciple. We mean we've seen the Father. We haven't seen the Father. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. Expose the Father to our eyes. Give evidence or proof of the Father, and we will be content. Literally, we'll be satisfied. It'll be enough for us. And Jesus replied in verse 9, Have I been with you for so long, and you've not known me, Philip? The person who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, Jesus is simply saying, Everything I do, the Father does too. We are unified. We are one. You know the Father and you know the Spirit because we are three distinct persons, but we are one. And therefore, if you've seen me, then you know the Father and you know the Spirit because we never work without being in total unison with each other. We're always on the same page. If I would do it, so would the Father and the Spirit. So if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know what the Father is like if you know who I am. Jesus is saying. Do you believe or do you not believe, verse 10, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I even say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. I, I, I don't speak these words by myself is what Jesus is saying. But the Father residing in me, literally remaining or abiding continually in me, performs these miraculous deeds. So Jesus is saying, verse 11, believe in me. Come to your own personal conviction that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not believe me, if you don't trust me, then believe because of the miraculous deeds themselves. Because it was the miraculous deeds that Jesus did that were supposed to be authenticating, confirming signs of who he was. That's why he did it. Jesus didn't do miracles because he was some grandstander. That he thought, oh, I'm going to attract a bunch of attention and get a bunch of people. No, he did them because the Old Testament predicted when Messiah would come, these were the miracles, these were the signs that he would do that would authenticate and confirm that he was the Son of God. And so Jesus is saying, if you don't want to believe me, then see what I've done and that should authenticate and confirm that me and the Father are one. I tell you the solemn truth. Verse 12, what is firm and faithful. 
The person who believes in me, again, going back to what he said at the very beginning, who places their trust and confidence in me, will perform the miraculous deeds that I am doing and will perform greater deeds than these. Wow. Notice one thing here right away. Jesus honors faith in him. When you and I place our faith, our trust and confidence in Him, He will honor us every time. Jesus honors faith. Now, Jesus here isn't saying that His followers are going to be greater than Him. That's not what He's saying. And He doesn't mean that His followers are greater in power than Him. The word greater here in this context means greater in extent and greater in compass. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, when I go back to my Father and send the Holy Spirit into each one of you, each one of you then will begin to witness. And God will use you in ways to where the, the gospel is going to go around the world. As long as I'm here in this bodily form and I've laid aside the independent use of my attributes then everywhere I move, yes, their God is at work, but, but now when I go back and send the Holy Spirit into all your lives, then everywhere you go, God works. And so it's going to be much far-reaching. And even today, maybe, and I, I realize I'm, I'm just guessing here way big time, but maybe in the entire three years of Jesus' earthly ministry, maybe, maybe He spoke to 250,000 people? Maybe. Golly, today through technology and stuff, <laughs> there are preachers and, and people and, and through all this that can speak to millions of people. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I will honor your faith in me. You can do these things too. You can be used by God to make an impact too. I got five minutes. I got to get these last two verses done. Because they are very misunderstood and misinterpreted verses. Because in verse 12, he's talking about our service for him. In verses 13 and 14, folks, all he's talking about is I will supply whatever you need to serve and glorify the Father. When he says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And people have taken these verses and just run with them and basically teach on television and in their books and, and even Christians and even and say, hey, all, all you need to do is just attach that name in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer. Whatever you ask God for, it says right there, He'll give it to you if you ask. So you just ask for all this stuff. And somehow if you don't get it, it's just because you didn't have enough faith. Because if you had enough faith... He said, if you just ask anything, he'll do it. Isn't that what the Bible says? Well, again, that's where we've got to study the Word of God. That's not what it's saying here. So let's break it down. First of all, the word do here in verse 13, I will do means I will provide. Whatever you ask, the word ask means what is required, what is called for, and the phrase, in my name, means what is in line with what God has revealed about himself, his character, his nature. It's not something you just attach at the end of the prayer, and whatever you pray, then we just all of a sudden at the end of our prayers as Christians say, oh, in Jesus' name, this is what I pray. 
So, right, you're going to do it for me. No. To pray in the name of Jesus, name being it embodied all that one was, Jesus simply saying, if you need something, if it is required of you bringing glory to me, and it is in line with my nature, my character, my will, yeah, then I will do it. But notice, not so that you and I can have what we want, but so that the Father may be glorified, magnified, praised, celebrated in the Son. So if you ask me anything, a certain or specific thing, in my name, if it lines up with what I have revealed about myself, I will do it. I'll make it happen. But it has to be in line with what God has revealed about himself. But what Jesus is saying is this. If God asks you or I to do something, if it's his will, then what these verses do teach is that if it's required of, if something is required of me to do his will, he promises to give it to me. He'll give me whatever I need to glorify him. He'll give me whatever I need that is in line with who he has revealed himself to be. In closing tonight, I want to just quickly have you turn to a couple passages of scriptures to, to sort of support what I'm saying here in the interpretation of this. Go back to the book of 1 Kings chapter 3 real quick in the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 3. Just setting this up, this is where Solomon is being asked by God, I'll give you something. What do you want me to give you? So, in 1 Kings chapter 3, I'm going to begin at verse 5 for the sake of time. One night in Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. God said, tell me what I should give, give you. Well, there's a, there's a loaded question, right? What if God came to you tonight and said, hey, whatever you want, what, what can I give you? Solomon replied, you demonstrated great loyalty to your servant, my father David, as he served you faithfully, properly, and sincerely. You have maintained this great loyalty to this day by allowing his son to sit on his throne. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in my father David's place. Even though I am only a young man and am inexperienced. Your servant stands among your chosen people. They are a great nation that is too numerous to count our numbers. So give your servant a discerning mind. So he can make judicial decisions for your people and distinguish right from wrong. He was asking for something that was in line with what God had revealed about himself and something that would bring glory to God. Not something for himself, but something to better glorify God and serve others. And because of that, notice what God's response is. Otherwise, no one is able to make judicial decisions for this great nation of yours. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased that Solomon made this request. God said to him, because you asked for the ability to make wise judicial decisions and not for long life or riches or vengeance on your enemies, I grant your request and give you a wise and discerning mind superior to that of anyone who's preceded or will succeed you. Furthermore, I'm giving you what you did not request, riches and honor, so that you will be the greatest king of your generation. See the principle? Now God gave him what he didn't ask for because God knew his heart, that his heart was, I'm not going to ask for something for myself. 
to be selfish. Because that's not in line with what God has revealed. God wants us not to be selfish. God wants us to be His servants. And then look over at James chapter 4 in the New Testament, just real quick. James chapter 4. It's a little phrase, but it's very important, especially in line with what we're talking about tonight. I'm just going to begin reading at verse 1, James 4, 1, and go through verse 3. When do the, where do the conflicts and where do the quarrels among you come from? Is it not from this, from your passions that battle inside you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and envy and you cannot obtain. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. So that, there's, that's true. There is the principle that sometimes we don't have what, what we should have because we're simply not going and asking. But there's also another principle here, verse 4. And you ask me, but notice, and you do not receive because you ask wrongly so you can spend it on your passions. God is basically saying like to me, a good parent would say to a child, if the child came up and said, hey, uh, can you give me about 10000 What are you going to do with it? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I just thought I'd go out and blow it. What parent in the right mind is just going to give their kid some gob of money and not even care whether they're responsible for it or not. Well, God's the same way in, in a much greater degree. He's not just going to give us things to make us more selfish. He's trying to train us to be like Jesus Christ. So when the Bible teaches that if you ask anything in my name, I will do it, it's because we're walking in fellowship with God. That's what the Old Testament verse means when it says, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. The reason God will give us the desires of our heart is because we're already delighting ourselves in the Lord. In a sense, because we're walking in such close fellowship with God, we already know what His desires are. So when we pray and we ask God for things, our desires line up with His desires. That's what Jesus is saying in John 14. That when you walk with me in fellowship with me, and you know what is required to bring glory to my Father and to serve others, you can ask. Feel free to ask, and I'll make it happen. I'll give it to you. Because I want my Father to be glorified, and I want you to have the capacity and the ability to serve others. But don't think that I'm this Santa Claus God up there in heaven that you can just come to at any time with any whim and, and just ask for selfish things and things to make yourself, you know. No, that's not what God is. That's not who God is. That doesn't line up with what God has revealed about himself. So I want to end with this. And maybe you need to take time to think about this and pray about that. This That's okay. I, I would certainly expect it unless God's been working on you for a while now and you're sort of ready. The question I'd like to leave with everyone here tonight is this, based upon where we ended tonight. What do you need to ask God for in your life? What do you need to ask God for in your life? God wants you to ask. And God said, I'll, get, I'll make it happen. I'll give you whatever lines up with who I am in order that my Father's glorified. What does God want you and me to ask Him for? 
Again, maybe some of you, you need to think about that for a while. You need to pray about that. But don't be afraid to ask. Because Jesus does say to his followers, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Because Jesus is saying, I'll supply to my followers whatever they need to sustain themselves and to be a witness for me through this life. I hope tonight that this passage we've looked at has been encouraging to you as over the years it has to me. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for these words of Jesus. Thank you, God, that you care so much about us, even to the point where we were reminded tonight that Jesus himself, is preparing a marked-off personal space for every one of His followers in heaven. That's how much He thinks about us. That's how much He cares about each of us as individuals. And you're going to come back and get us one day, God. We thank you for those promises. God, right now, before we get to that point, maybe there's some of us here, and we all go through these at times, uh, a season of severe trial and tribulation. God, may we be like the disciples were encouraged to be by Jesus. May we just keep believing in you, trusting and placing our confidence in you, no matter what's going on around us. As horrendous as it was for the disciples to see their own Jesus crucified on that cross, as horrendous as it was to know that one of them was going to betray him and one of them was going to deny him, In spite of all that, Lord, you called them to believe in you. And that if they did that, you would sustain them. And God, that same principle, that same truth, that same certainty is true today. That no matter what is going on in our life, if we just place our confidence and trust in you, you will sustain us through anything and everything that life can bring. So God, may we be encouraged And may we go from this place ready to encourage others. Thank you, God, for bringing us together tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.